Hey, um, 1926, anybody remember that year? <clears throat> it's the year I stopped cracking my voice, right? 1926, uh, nobody in here probably remembers, but you probably heard the story about a, a young New York Yankee fan. His name was Johnny Sylvester. He was recovering from a riding accident, and he developed a severe infection, a bone infection, and wasn't sure if he was going to make it. And uh, it was during this time that the Yankees were playing in a World Series game, and uh, the Yankees got word of Johnny's illness during a rain delay in Game 3. And they were all like, let's all sign a baseball for him and take it over to the hospital. And so they all signed it. But Babe Ruth not only put his signature on that baseball, but he also said, I'll knock a homer for you in Wednesday's game. He's promising this little boy he's going to hit a home run for him. I don't know about you, but that's pretty gutsy. If you're an athlete, you know you can't just go out and say, I'm going to do this or that which like hitting a home run in the major leagues, that's, you know, the percentages aren't always the greatest. Well, Babe Ruth, he, uh, he did not hit that home run. He hit three home runs in that game. And uh, they won in a 10-5 victory. And, you know, you think about that, that little boy was overjoyed. And in fact, then, you know, you saw the newspaper clipping, he actually went to visit him. Um, but how many times has an athlete, a coach, struggled to keep their promise? And it's not just athletes and coaches. It's teachers, bosses, doctors, spouses, friend, somebody that you thought you could trust. And it's like, man, they broke the promise. Uh, it happens often, doesn't it? We say one thing with our words, but then we do something totally different with our actions. And all of a sudden it's like, I thought you made a promise to me. Well, when times got tough, which they are now, and when life is unstable, which sort of feels like right now, what we need, and I think you'll agree with this, is not a bunch of promise makers, but a bunch of promise keepers. We want truth. We want to know when something is said and done, it's going to be followed through. And God's faithfulness should encourage all of us as believers that we have a hope that is anchored in what has been done on our behalf by God. He is a God who is faithful, who not only makes promises, he keeps his promises. Matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, it says this. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. Without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. You might want to underline that in your Bible sometime. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchors for our soul. As followers of Christ... Our hope centers on the objective promises from God. Jesus Christ is the foundations and the substance for that hope. He is the reason for our eternal optimism. So we need that hope, don't we? In a promise, not just a promise maker, but also a promise keeper. With that being said, open up your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. In Habakkuk... We wrap up our series here in this book where Habakkuk is basically saying, 
I've been looking, God, for these things in my life, and I, I thought you were going to do this, but I wasn't sure. And I thought you were going to do this, but I wasn't sure. But it's like he's looking for a God who is a promise keeper. Habakkuk, again, small little book in the back of your Old Testament. You might have to go to your table of contents. If you remember, Habakkuk begins his book by asking God why he is so slow in answering his prayer for revival in the land. God, there's some bad things going on in our world right now. Lawlessness, violence. Don't you see it? You're going to change it? God answers, said, yeah, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to send the Babylonians to punish the people. Oh, Babylonians, not liking that answer. So he asked God, God, how could you do that? That doesn't make sense to me. How could you use wicked people to punish those who are righteous? Doesn't make sense to me, God. So God answers that question then in chapter 2, which is where we were last week. God basically tells Habakkuk, you have to choose how you're going to live, Habakkuk. Life of pride or a life of faith? Which one? The remainder of chapter 2 describes how the ones who are full of pride are going to be punished and brought low, which included the Babylonians. Times are tough. Habakkuk's figuring that out. As he's going back and forth with God, he thinks the future is going to get worse. But he, he says the righteous will live by faith. Chapter 2 contains at the very end of Revelation. If you look at that last verse, verse 20, it says this. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It's like, I got a question, got an answer. I got another question, because I don't like your answer. And then you get the answer. And then it's like, okay. He comes to this point where he's like, he feels like he's been placed in the presence of God in his holy temple. And things change. Chapter 3, verse 1 is where we're going to pick up now. Because here's what's going to happen. Habakkuk gets this revelation. Now Habakkuk's going to pray. And his prayer is pretty incredible. He says this, I've heard all about you, Lord, I'm filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. He starts a prayer. And again, we always ask that question. Well, what is prayer? Prayer is a conversation with God. Prayer can be informal. It can be formal. It can be um, approaching God in, in a sort of a nonchalant manner. It can be a very, I'm getting serious with you, God. Prayer should always be humbling. It's very easy, and I know it's because it's like, oh, I'm just going to pray and bless the food, right? Like, thank you for the food. Like, whatever. Got that in? Let's eat. Or there's times when I'm mowing the lawn. I'm praying. It's like, well, I got nothing better to do. I'm just going to pray. And so I'm praying, and I'm thinking, is it bad to pray when I'm mowing? I mean, shouldn't I get on my knees? Or you know? And so there's times that I'm sitting there saying, when's, when's the right and wrong time? But there's something I learned here from Habakkuk's prayer, and that is that humility is essential. So even if it's formal or informal, there's a thing in, the, in our prayers that should be that of humility. And what I mean by humility is recognizing that we are not God, that He is, and that when we bow, we bow only to God. We can't succeed in prayer if we come into God's presence, standing upright, demanding things. 
We cannot succeed in prayer if we think we deserve to be heard. God, you need to listen to me. Have you ever prayed like that before? Habakkuk's approach to God is a very humble prayer. And he claims to stand in awe of God and God's deeds. And when you look at how he prays now, compared to how he prayed in chapter 1, there's something took place. Something happened. His prayers changed. His focus changed. See, remember his mind was on the Babylonians and the Israelites. It's like, what's happening to us? Look how lawless this world is. Look how violent it is. Oh, wait, you're going to send the Babylonians? Those are words. And his focus is on everything around him, right? Focus changes. Focus is now on God. And now he's operating in a different way. You can tell, remember, at the end of chapter, uh, end of chapter 2, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It's like all of a sudden he got his, his focus off of the things around him and his focus on God. It's like he's in the presence of God. And he realizes, wow, I've not been having the right focus when I pray, when I talk to God. I've not had the right focus as I've been walking through life. And he's been given this fresh vision. He sees the wonderful vision of the Lord in his holy temple. And in comparison, he compares that to sinful mankind. And when he looks at the sinfulness of mankind and the holiness of God, he goes, there is no comparison. We can't demand to be heard, church, in our prayers just because we think we're good people. Just because we put money in the offering plate. Just because maybe we served in a church in a position of leadership. Or just because, well, I've been a Christian for umpteen years. Whatever reasons we come with, just because we have those reasons doesn't mean like, God needs to hear from me. I deserve to be heard. You know what we deserve from, from God? Just think about it. What do we all deserve from God? Nothing, right? Now, if you want to get technical, here's what we deserve. Eternity separated from him in hell. That's what we deserve. Because of our unrighteousness, because of our sin. But God in his mercy, through his son Jesus Christ, rescues us from sin. And if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are saved. And for those who believe, those who call upon the Lord, we are called his children. Now, even though we deserve separation from God, he's wiped that out. And now we are blessed with eternity in his presence. That's... You know, if you want to get technical, what we deserve and don't deserve. We don't deserve anything from God. So when we go to him in prayer, whenever God answers, it is a blessing. We must be humble in our prayers and show adoration. So Habakkuk starts off this chapter 3 with a humbleness in prayer. You know what I like about the Bible is that when you look through the Bible, a lot of things aren't always isolated. They're always connected to something else. And if you look, as you read through the Bible, you might be reading, it's like, oh, that reminds me of this scripture. Oh, that reminds me of this scripture. As I'm reading Habakkuk 3, you know what came to my mind? Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, what's that all about? Jesus has these three encounters. His first encounter, to give you a setting, Jesus is in the boat. Big storm. It's crazy. Jesus has to calm the storm. You know, he and his disciples are soaking wet. They thought they were going to drown, right? He calms the storm. They get to the shore. They come to the shore. The shore is a cemetery. There's a demon-possessed man. Crazy man. Nobody can contain him. They try to chain him up. He busts his chains. 
runs around naked screaming, it's a very scary person, okay? It is dark, they're wet, it smells like pigs. Apologies to all the pig farmers in here, okay? But it, if you remember the rest of the story, the demons that get tossed out of this man go into a herd of pigs that go off into the water and die. So that's the setting. It's dark, they pull in on the boat, they get out of the boat, now check out. What happens, verse 6. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man, that's the crazy man, the naked man, the demon-possessed man, ran to meet him. And what did he do? He bowed low before Jesus. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. So here's the first encounter. A man possessed by demons knows who Jesus is. He knows who Jesus is. He knows the power of Jesus. He knows he's the son of God. He calls him out, Jesus, son of God. And what position does the demon man take? On a knee. Second encounter. After Jesus tosses those demons out of this man... He gets back into his boat. Verse 21 and 20 through 23 say this. Jesus got into his boat and he went to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around the shore. This is just hours later. A leader of a local synagogue, a leader of a local synagogue, somebody in charge, somebody who gives orders, not takes orders, whose name was Jairus arrived. And when he saw Jesus, he what? Fell at his feet. Pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying. He said, please come lay your hands on her and heal her so she can live. Here's, a, here's somebody who's in leadership. Where does he find himself when Jesus shows up? On his knees. He recognizes who Jesus is. Third encounter. So basically now, as they're leaving to go to his house, people all around gathering and they're bumping into each other. There's no social distancing going on in this story, okay? They're like touching each other and everything, and coughing, whatever, I don't know. And they get to the point where this, this lady, she's been sick for years. She has this physical disorder, incurable. She's seen all kinds of doctors, spent all of her money. She's got this bleeding that just won't stop. And she's hopeless and helpless. In her mind, she says, if I can just touch the robe of Jesus, if I can just touch his tassels, I'll be cured. So as Jesus is making himself through this crowd and gathering, she touches the robe. Boom, she's healed just like that. Jesus, who knows all things, is like, hey, who touched me? The disciples are like, serious, Jesus? He did, she did, they did, I probably did. We all probably touched you, Jesus, right? Jesus knows who touched him, but he sort of puts that question out there. Look what he says, verse 32. But he kept on looking around to see who did it. Then the frightened woman, she is fearful. Why? Because she knows she just touched the robe of Jesus and something happened in her body. She's healed. She's trembling at the realization of what happened to her. She came and what did she do? Fell to her knees in front of Jesus told him about what she had done. And he said to her, shame on you. No, it doesn't say that. What does it say? It says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is done. She was healed. Jesus didn't shame her. He didn't look at her and like, 
What were you thinking? She gets it. This is the Son of God, and my humble position should be on my knees. Demon-possessed, leadership, those who are sick and hurting. Where do we need to be when we come to Jesus? On our knees. Story after story, as you go through Scripture, you see this. So when we come to Jesus, when we pray to God, church, listen, we should be in a humble position, not a demanding position. Then we get to the content of the prayer now. So that's, that's the attitude of Habakkuk coming into chapter 3. But now we get to the heart of the content of his prayer. This is incredibly written. And he basically remembers who God is. He remembers how God fulfills his promises. He's basically saying, wow, God is not just a promise maker. He is a promise keeper. Therefore, I can trust him. He is worthy to be trusted because of who he is, what he does. I can trust him. Look at verse 3. We'll read through this chapter. Verse 3. I see God moving across the deserts from Edom, the Holy One coming from Mount Paran. His brilliant splendor fills the heavens and the earth is filled with His praise. His coming is as brilliant as the sunrise. Rays of light flash from His hands where His awesome power is hidden. For those of you who take pictures of sunrises and post them, thank you. Because when you read verse 4, his coming is as brilliant as the sunrise. Rays of light flash from his hands where his awesome power is hidden. Next time you see a sunrise, just think about rays of light coming from God's hand and his power. Okay, Just let that be your, your, your vision. Verse 5, pestilence marches before him. Plagues follow close behind. When he stops, boom, the earth shakes. When he looks, the nations tremble. He shatters the everlasting mountains. He levels the eternal hills. He is the eternal one. I see the people of Cushan in distress and the nation of Midian trembling in terror. Was it in anger, Lord, that you struck the rivers and parted the seas? Were you displeased with them? No. You were sending your chariots of salvation. You brandished your bow and your quiver of arrows. You split open the earth with flowing rivers. The mountains watched and trembled. Onward swept the raging waters. The mighty deep cried out, lifting its hands in submission. Look at verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in the skies. Your brilliant arrows flew and your glittering spear flashed. You marched across the land in anger and trampled the nations in your glory. Verse 13. You went out to rescue your chosen people, to save your anointed ones. You crushed the heads of the wicked and stripped their bones from head to toe. With his own weapons, you destroyed the chief of those who rushed out like a whirlwind, thinking Israel would be easy prey. Verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses and the mighty waters piled high. These verses, this prayer, deal with God's defense of the Jewish people. And he led led them out of Egypt through the wilderness, into the promised land. He speaks here in a way that says God's mighty actions. You can see it. Listen, the mountains tremble. The earth shakes. All of nature, who is inanimate, becomes animated. We are animated, and we have become inanimate with God. What's wrong with that? When rocks and mountains shake at God, but we, like, hey, I'm talking to the big guy in the sky. Yeah, whatever, God. 
Verse 3, Habakkuk basically is looking at the great deliverance when God met Moses and delivered people out of Egypt. Verse 4, probably speaking of the, the, pot, the pillar of fire and, and it was seen at night and the cloud by day as the children of Israel moved through the wilderness. Verse 5, Habakkuk speaking of the plagues of Egypt and the conquest of Canaan. Verse 8, parting of the Red Sea and then eventually the Jordan River. Verse 11 references the incident related to Joshua 10. When the Jewish armies had fallen on the forces of the Amorite king. And the Amorite kings fled because God struck the soldiers with large hailstones. And Joshua prayed for the sun and moon to stand still, which it did, so that it stayed light long enough for them to be victorious in their battle. Incredible things that God did. And Habakkuk's like, boom, and this, and this, and this. He's going through remembering all that God did. Because God is faithful. If God did this, then will he do this for you now? Yes. You know why? Because he is not just a promise maker. He is a promise keeper. The Bible doesn't just have great ideas. Well, that's a great idea. Glad they thought of that. Oh, it's like great truth. Great action of history and things that took place. His mighty acts. His deliverance of the people. From fear and giving provision to times when we're struggling on the inside. Those aren't just good ideas. Those are things that God did and still does today. God reminds Habakkuk, don't distress about this coming invasion. I'm a faithful God. My mighty past actions prove it. And they'll be true today and tomorrow. You get to one of the Psalms. Psalm um, 77, 11 through 12 says, But then I recall all you've done, O Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I can't stop thinking about your mighty works. Even the psalm is like, God, there's so many good things. Sometimes I wrestle with what I'm thinking about, but there's so many good things that you've done, your mighty works. God told Habakkuk, Habakkuk, you need to live by faith. Habakkuk says, I want to live by faith. I want to live by faith. But sometimes living by faith isn't easy because sometimes I get scared. Verse 16 of Habakkuk 3 says this. I trembled inside when I heard this. My lips quivered with fear. My legs gave way beneath me. I shook in fear. And the question is this. Is he fearing what's going on or is he fearing God? I sense that after he's looking at everything, being in the temple of God, seeing all the mighty acts of God, he comes to this point and says, I'm basically shaking now. You know why? Because God is awesome. Church, we've become desensitized to who God is. We think things on, you know, we look at it, oh, check out this video, this is awesome. No, this is a video, it is pretty funny, okay. But you know what's awesome? Is the things that God has done. Oh, because maybe we haven't seen it like the mighty acts in the Bible in Exodus when the Red Sea parted. If you were driving down by the Maumee River and all of a sudden you just saw the river just pull open and split open, you would like, oh, right? And you're like, oh, you'd be speechless. And then if you heard the voice of God saying, I did that, you're like, oh, yeah, you did you'd probably think God's pretty awesome. Because maybe we've seen some, never seen something of that magnitude. We don't know how to look at God in a humble way and in, a, in an awesome way. 
There's a lot of things that go on in our life that cause us to fear. And I'm thinking, you know, for him, it was, I need to remember who God is. See, every, all of us have, have fear. We handle fear differently. Some of us resign from fear. We're like, hey, if this is going to happen to me, it's going to happen to me. I guess there's nothing I can do about it. Everybody suffers. Everybody dies. Whatever. But that's not the Christian way to handle fear. A second reaction is detachment. A person is going to say, well, I don't want to think about those kind of things because they, they make me scared. So I, the, the stock market, the future, viruses, um, the best solution, I'm just going to not think about it. I'm going to detach myself from it and get myself caught up in all this other stuff over here. Problem is subconsciously all this stuff over here still seeps in. Third approach is sheer boldness where we're like, hey, fear not. Come on, buckle up, never give up. It's the pep talk that a lot of us dads give our kids. It's uh, Mr. Motivation Speaker, right? Well, the Christian way of dealing with fear is probably none of those things. We use some of those things. But the best way to deal with fear is to rejoice in the God of salvation. You got something you're scared of? Yes? Yes. You know how you handle that? Rejoice in the fact that you have a God of salvation that is bigger than all of that. Your daddy's big. Right? You remember those things? My dad can beat up your dad. Remember those old days when people would say those kind of things? Listen, my father, my heavenly father can handle anything. So yeah, I've got fear, but my heavenly father is above all that. I can't, right? But he can. So when we have all those sayings in the Bible, fear not, fear not, do not be afraid. You know what that is? That's an invitation to trust an almighty God who can. Because again, I can't, but he can. Because he is God. This is what Habakkuk did. He's like, I've got a situation in my life. I'm not sure what to do. So here's the truth. Here's the facts. God's in charge. God is awesome. God's in his temple. God is big. So let's apply that to my fear right now. Can I trust God? Yes. So I can trust God? Yes. Now you see the turn now in Habakkuk's prayer. Because now it's like, I'm trusting God. See what he says now in verse 17. He says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms, even though there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails, and the fields lie empty and barren. Even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty. Even though, even though this happens, hey, even though my car breaks down, even though I lost my job, hey, even though I grabbed a piece of bread I was eating and discovered it had mold all over it five bites later. Even though whatever happens, you get sick. Even though, you know what I'm saying? All these even those we have in our lives. Actually, no, the scripture says suppose, right? Suppose. Well, here we, it's translated even though, but... Let me put it to you like this. Imagine you're sitting in your house, okay? And somebody comes knocking at your door. They say, who's there? He goes, Mr. Suppose. Mr. Suppose? Yes, Mr. Suppose. Now, understand about this, about Mr. Suppose who's knocking at your door. He's rude. He likes to barge into your house when you don't want him to be there. And all he does is open his mouth and say things. Hey, suppose you get sick. 
Hey, suppose you, your car breaks down. Hey, suppose you lose your job. What are you going to do next? Hey, suppose your son, oh, they're going out driving right now? Ooh, you probably ought to worry about that. Well, suppose this happens. Well, hey, suppose that happens. And all of a sudden, that suppose, Mr. Suppose, is barging into your house. By the way, you know who Mr. Suppose brings with him? He always brings his friends. Miss Anxiety. He likes Miss Anxiety. He always brings her along like, hey, you okay? I mean, suppose this happens. My friend here might be able to help it out. Meet Miss Anxiety. She likes to hang out with people like you, right? That's sort of what's happening here. Somebody's trying to barge into Habakkuk's life and say, hey, suppose this happens. Suppose this happens. So what does he say? Look what he says. Suppose the fig tree doesn't bud. Suppose there are no grapes on the vine. Suppose the olive crops fail. Suppose the fields produce no food. Suppose there are no sheep in the pen. Suppose there are no cattle in the, in the stalls. Yeah, suppose that all happens, Habakkuk says. Come on in, Mr. Suppose. Come on in. Yeah, that might happen. Come on in. I want you to meet who's sitting in my living room with me. His name is God. And he's in charge of all things in this house. You want to come hang out with God? Suppose won't come in. Suppose doesn't like to be told truth. Suppose doesn't like to be put in his place. When the Lord is the Lord of your house, the Lord of your life, the Lord of this temple, suppose don't want to come knocking. Oh, he'll try to knock. But truth always sends it running. Because Habakkuk goes on to say this in verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, suppose all those things happen. Yeah, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord because the Lord is the Lord of my life. I'll be joyful in the God of my salvation, the one who has saved me. And then verse 19, the one that we've talked about in the first sermon, that is this, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. Habakkuk wraps it, up, wraps it up with the first verse that I started with because this is such a huge verse. Again, sovereign Lord, God is in charge of all things. God, I know all these things might happen. Suppose they might happen. But God, I'm not asking you to change the path. Just make my feet sure-footed to be able to walk the path that I'm facing today. So when those supposes come knocking... I can keep walking with you, Lord, and trust what you put before me because you are God. I don't have to listen to these things. You are God. I will humbly pray and be in awe of who you are. And you will help me in these times. I believe that. You know why? Because God is a promise keeper. He doesn't just make promises. Surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And I'm going off to prepare and make a man, uh, my man to make a room for you. I'm preparing a room for you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Those are promises made and promises kept. He is a faithful God. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. Habakkuk rightly declared his strength was not in the things around him, fig trees, flocks, fields, whatever it may be, but it was only in the Lord God, his sovereign God. A lot of times we put our hope in all these things in front of us, but we forget what really matters. You know, so, you know, the fun part, um, and I don't know if it's fun, I don't know why I'm saying this, but sometimes when I share stories with you, my life stories, see, people a lot of times put stories on Facebook and look what I, I don't, I don't put my, my stories on Facebook, I just share them on Sunday. Um, and and there, was, there was a time 
when, and it's so typical of our family when something like this happens, like, yep, sounds like something that would probably happen to your family, Rex. So we, we got this big TV one time, and we were so excited because um, we were like, we knew right where we were going to put it on the wall. We got the wall mount up. And it's like we've got this TV, and it's like, this is going to be great. We're gonna, it's been a long week, a long day, and we thought, let's just watch TV and just chill. So we open up the box, cut the straps right from the factory, right? Pop it open, bags in there, the foam's all, everything's packaged properly, nothing's out of sort, looks good. Pull it out, like, oh, this is going to be great, right? But then it's like, I wonder where um, the instructions, oh, well, there's no owner's manual. Well, you probably got to go online. Oh, wait a minute. There's no remote control. How are we going to turn this on and off and change the channels? It didn't matter because there was no power cord either. So we had a brand new big TV with no power cord, no manual, no remote. And I was thinking about that, feeling pretty helpless. Put it up on the wall. Looks good. Doesn't work. That's a lot of times like our life. We can look good, especially during moments like now. But sometimes things aren't working. Because we're missing something. We're missing the manual that has our instructions in knowing how to deal with things in life, God's word. And, and we're missing the remote, like how the Holy Spirit controls our life and helps us make the right choices. Oh, but most importantly, we're missing the power cord that connects us to the almighty God, most powerful of all. You know, I could use all three. That would be great. And then I'd be able to enjoy what's going on. But you know what? If I don't have his word, if I don't have his spirit working in me, and if I'm not connecting to our heaven, my heavenly father through Jesus Christ, I'm powerless. So yeah, I am going to fear. I am going to doubt. I'm not going to be very trusting. But when I have all three, I can trust my God because he's a promise maker and a promise keeper. Would you stand please? Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. God, again, I thank you that in times like today, we can look at scripture and say, wow, Habakkuk went through similar things that we went through. Maybe not the same kind of army, but the same kind of lawlessness and fear and doubt. And then God, you bring us to this point like Habakkuk where it's like, you know what? I need to stop demanding things from God and start trusting him and humbly bow and get on my knees and approach God the way he needs to be approached. And that is, he is God, period. And knowing that he is God, I can look at all the supposes and even those and things that might happen in my life. Yep, those might happen, that might happen. But you know what? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. For, oh, sovereign Lord, give me the sure feet of that deer. God, we trust you. Whatever may come our way will come our way. There's nothing we can do about it. But what we can do, Lord, is approach you, a mighty God who keeps his promises to never leave us, to never forsake us. Thank you, God, that you are with us. So God, help us to worship you, the one and only true God. May we give you all the glory. We want to magnify you and make you big, God, because you are. Big. In the name we pray. Amen.